Chapter Four of the Second Latchkey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Second Latchkey, by Charles Norris and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Four, The Great Moment. The men were staring so keenly at Mr. N. Smith that it seemed to Annesley he must feel the stab of eyes, sharp as pinpricks, in his back. He had the self-control, however, not to look round, not even to change expression. No man in the restaurant appeared more calmly at ease than he. The couple had accompanied their stare with eager whisperings. Then, as if on some hasty decision, they pushed back their chairs and got up. Taking a few steps, they separated, approaching Smith on right and left. One, therefore, stood between him and Annesley, as if to prevent an exchange of word or glances. There was something eastern and oddly alien about them, in spite of their conventional clothes. "'Mr. Michael Varco,' said the bigger and older, he who stood on the left of Smith. The other kept in the background, not to crowd with conspicuous rudeness between Annesley and her host." The man who spoke had a thick voice and a curious accent, which the girl, with her small experience, was unable to place. "'No,' answered Smith, in a puzzled tone. "'You mistake me for someone else.' "'I think not,' insisted the bearded man, in a hostile draw. "'I think not.' "'I'm sure not,' echoed the other. "'You are Michael Varco. There's no getting away from that.' The emphasis seemed to add, "'And no getting away from us.' Excitement stirred Annesley to courage. "'Why, how horrid!' she exclaimed, bending past the human obstacle. "'People taking you for some foreigner. "'I'm sure you can't be a man with such a name as Michael Varco. "'Tell them who we are.' "'My name is Nelson Smith,' said her official husband. "'My wife is not—' "'Your wife?' repeated the man standing opposite Annesley. "'He stared with insolent incredulity. "'Mr. and Mrs. Nelson Smith. "'A good name to take. "'It happens to have been given me.' slight sharpness broke the tolerance of Smith's tone. "'I don't believe you,' exclaimed the other. Smith's black brows drew together. "'It doesn't matter whether you believe or not,' he said. "'What does matter is that you should annoy us. I tell you I'm not Michael Varco, and never heard the name. If you're not satisfied, and if you don't go back to your dinner and let us finish ours in peace, I'll appeal to the management.' "'Well,' grumbled the taller of the pair, "'if you're not the man I want, you're his image, minus his moustache and beard. "'You must be Varco.' "'Of course he's Varco,' insisted the other. "'Of course he's not,' said Annesley, with just the right amount of irritation. "'Our name is Smith. "'Nelson, do tell this person to ask the head waiter who engaged the table, "'and not stay here making a fuss.' "'Anybody can engage a table in the name of Smith,' sneered the first speaker. "'That is nothing.' We go by something more convincing than a name. There are countries where men have been arrested on less resemblance, or put out of the way. "'Oh, Nelson, he's frightening me,' faltered Annesley. "'He must have lost his senses.' "'You think that, do you?' the fierce eyes fixed her with a stare. "'You tell me, madam, you, madam, that you are this man's wife?' "'I do tell you so,' the girl replied firmly. "'Though I don't see that it's your affair. Now go away.' "'Very well, we take your word,' returned the man, in a tone which said that he did nothing of the sort. "'And we go, back to our table, to let you finish your meal, Mr. and Mrs. Smith.' His black glance sprang like a tarantula from her face to her companions, then to his friends. 
The latter accepted the ultimatum and followed in sulky silence. But when the pair were seated at their own table, though they ordered food and wine, their attention was still for the alleged Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Annesley tried to ignore the fact that they stared without ceasing, but she could not help being aware of their eyes. She felt faint, and everything in the room whirled giddily. "'Drink some champagne,' said Smith's quiet voice. The girl obeyed, and the ice wine cooled the fire in the blood and nerves. "'You have been splendid,' Smith encouraged her. "'I know you won't fail me now.' "'I promise you I will not,' returned Annesley. "'The worst is over. I feel ready for anything.' "'How can I thank you?' he murmured. "'If I had all the rest of my life to do it in, instead of a few minutes, it wouldn't be too much. You were perfect in your manner, not anxious, only annoyed, just the right air for a self-respecting Mrs. Smith.' They both laughed, and Annesley was surprised that she could laugh naturally and gaily. Presently she laughed again, when Mr. Smith remarked that she had missed her vocation in not being an actress. She, the country mouse, who had hardly been inside a theatre. The two lingered over their dinner, watched with impatience by the men at the other table, who had ordered only one dish and paid for it immediately, that they might be ready for anything at an instant's notice. They also had a small bottle of wine, which they sipped abstemiously, as an excuse to remain after their food had been eaten. When at last Mr. and Mrs. Smith had finished their bombe surprise and trifled with some fruit, Annesley said, "'Evidently they don't care how long they have to wait.' I suppose there's nothing for us to do but to go? Oh, yes, there's still something, said Smith. We'll have coffee in the foyer, and see what the enemy's next move is. It would be a mistake to let the brutes believe they're frightening us. Annesley agreed in silence, but in her heart she was glad to lengthen out the adventure. Soon she would have to creep back to her dull, modern substitute for a moated grange, and after that, not the deluge, nothing so exciting, extinction. As they walked out of the restaurant together, the girl glanced up at the dark profile, mysterious as a stranger's, yet familiar as a friend's. The man had told her nothing about himself, except that he was in danger, and had given no hint as to what the danger was, but the girl's heart was warm with belief in him. If there were a question of crime, the crime was not his. His superiority over those creatures must be moral as well as physical and social." By an odd coincidence, Mr. Smith steered for the sofa in the corner whence a man had stared from behind an open newspaper at a tall, lonely girl in grey, earlier in the evening. Annesley knew nothing of this coincidence, because she had not noticed the man, but even if she had, she would have forgotten him. She had been thinking of herself when she first trailed her grey dress over the red carpet of the foyer. Now, returning, she thought of the man who was with her and the two who were certain to follow. Scarcely were she and Smith seated before the others appeared. The men sat down in chairs drawn up at a little table, and not only must those in the corner pass by them in escaping, but every word spoken above a whisper must be overheard. This fact did not embarrass Smith. He ordered coffee and cigarettes, and talked to Annesley in an ordinary tone about a motor trip, which it would be pleasant to take. The watchers also demanded coffee, but the waiter they summoned was slow in fulfilling their order. When it was obeyed, before the pair had time to lift cup to lip, Mr. Smith took an impish pleasure in getting to his feet. "'Come, dear,' he said. "'We'd better be off.' He laid on the table money for the coffee and cigarettes, with a satisfactory tip. Then, without looking at their neighbors, he and Annesley passed, 
walking shoulder to shoulder with a leisurely step toward the entrance. "'I suppose there's no chance of shaking them off?' the girl whispered. "'None whatever,' said Smith. "'But we've had the fun of cheating them out of their coffee, because they won't chance our stopping to pick up our wraps. They'll be on our heels till the end of the journey, so there's nothing for it except to stick to the original plan of my going home with you. I hope you don't mind. I hope you're not afraid of me now.' "'I'm not at all afraid,' said Annesley. "'I thank you for that. If our taxi outruns theirs, I shan't need to trespass on your kindness beyond the doorstep. But if they overtake us, and are on the spot before you can vanish into the house, and I can disappear in some other direction, are you still game to keep your promise? The promise to let me go indoors with you?' "'Yes, I am game to the end, whatever the end might be,' the girl answered, and she wondered at herself, because her heart was as brave as her words.' Five minutes later Annesley, wrapped in her thin cloak, was stepping into a taxi. As Smith followed and told the chauffeur where to drive, the two watchers shot through the revolving door in time to overhear, and also to order a taxi. Annesley wondered for one dismayed instant why her companion should have given the real address. He might have mentioned some other street, and thus have gained time, but a second thought told her that, with the pursuing taxi so close upon their heels, an attempt to deceive would have been useless. The policy of defiance was the only one. For a few moments neither the girl nor the man spoke, although Annesley felt that there were a thousand things to say. Every second was taking them nearer to Torrington Square, and their parting must soon come. After that all would be blankness for her, as before this wonderful night. Such thoughts made the girl a prisoner of silence, and Mr. Smith was also tongue-tied. Was he concentrating his mind upon some plan of escape from these mysterious enemies? She told herself this must be so, yet his first words proved that he had been thinking of the risks she ran. "'If the dragon comes out of her den and catches us at the door, will that mean a catastrophe for you, or can I be explained away?' he inquired. "'I don't know,' said Annesley, "'and somehow I don't care.' "'I care,' the man replied. "'I can't have harm come to you through me.' But tell me before we go farther, does it matter to you, Miss Grail, that in a little while you and I may see the last of each other? I feel I have a sort of right to ask that question, because it matters such a lot to me. I've got to know you better in this one evening than I could in a year in a commonplace way. I don't want you to go out of my life, because you're the best thing that ever came into it. And if I dared hope that I might mean to you, some day, half of what you've begun to mean for me already— why, I wouldn't let you go. Annesley clasped her hands under her cloak. They were cold yet tingling. Her blood was leaping, but she could not speak. She was afraid of saying too much. Can't you give me a grain of hope? he went on. His voice was wistful. We have so little time. What, what do you want me to say? Annesley stammered. I want you to say that you don't wish to see the last of me tonight. I shouldn't be human if I could wish that the words seemed to speak themselves, and she, who had been taught to repress and hide emotion as if it were a vice, was glad that the truth was out. After all they had gone through together, she couldn't send this man away believing her indifferent. "'I—it doesn't seem as if we were strangers,' she faltered on. "'Strangers? I should think not,' he echoed. "'We mayn't know much about each other's tastes, but we do know about each other's souls, which is more than can be said of most men and women acquainted for half a lifetime.' As for our past, you haven't had one, and I— 
"'Well, if I swear to you that I've never murdered anybody, or been in prison, or committed an unforgivable crime, will you take my word? If you told me you were a murderer, or had committed some unforgivable crime, I—I I don't feel as if I could believe it,' Annesley assured him. "'It would hurt me to think evil of you. I'm sure it isn't you who are evil, but these men.' "'You're an angel to feel and to speak like that,' exclaimed Smith. "'I don't deserve your goodness, but I appreciate it. I'd like to take your hand and kiss it when I thank you, but I won't, because you're alone with me under my protection. To save me from trouble you've risked danger and put yourself in my power. I may be bad in some ways, most men are, or would be in women's eyes if women saw them as they are, but I'm not a brute. The worst I've ever done is to try to pay back a great injury, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Do you blame me for that? I have no right. I don't know what the injury was, said the girl, and hesitating a little. Still, I don't think I could find happiness in revenge. I could, or anyhow satisfaction, I confess that. About happiness I don't know much. But you could teach me. I? Yes. Do you believe there can be such a thing as love at first sight? I can't tell. Books say so. Perhaps— there's no perhaps. I found that out to-night. I believe love that comes at sight must be the only real love, a sort of electric call from soul to soul. The thing that's happened is just this. I've met the one woman, my helpmate. If I come out of this trouble, and can ask a girl like you to give herself to me, will you do it? Oh, you say this because you think you ought to be grateful, cried Annesley. But I don't want gratitude. This is the first time I've ever lived. I owe that to you, and it's more than you can know to me. The man laughed, a happy laugh, as though danger were miles away instead of on his heels. You know almost as much about men as a child knows, Miss Grail, he said, if you think I'm one of the sort, if there is such a sort, who would tie himself to a woman for gratitude. I've just one motive in wanting you to marry me. I love you and need you. I couldn't feel more if I'd known you months instead of hours. The wonder of it swept over Annesley in a flood. Even in her dreams, and she had had wild dreams sometimes, she had never pictured a man such as this loving her and wanting her. To the girl's mind he was so attractive that it seemed impossible his choice of her could be from the heart. She would wake up to a stale flat to-morrow, and find that none of these things had really happened. Still, she might as well live up to the dream while it lasted, and have the more to remember. "'It's a fairy story, surely,' she said, trying to laugh. "'There are so many beautiful girls in the world for a man like you, that I—' "'A man like me? What am I like?' "'Oh, it's hard to put into words. But, well, you're brave, I'm sure of that. I hope I'm not a coward. All normal men are brave. That's nothing. What else am I—to you?' "'Interesting. More interesting than—than than anyone I ever saw.' "'If you feel that, you don't want to send me out of your life, do you? "'After you've stood by and sheltered me from danger?' "'No, I don't want to send you out of my life, but there's only one way in which you can keep me, "'and I can keep you, circumstance as we are. "'We must be husband and wife.' "'Oh!' the girl covered her face with both hands. "'The world was on fire around her. "'I frightened you. "'Yet you might have consented to marry that other smith.' You went to meet him, to decide whether he was possible. I know, but I see now, if he'd kept his appointment, it would have ended in nothing, even if—if if he had been pleased with me. I couldn't have brought myself to say yes. 
How can you be certain? Because, Annesley spoke almost in a whisper, because he wasn't you. Smith snatched her clasped hands and kissed them. The warm touch of the man's lips gave the girl a new, mysterious sensation. No man had ever kissed her hands. Suddenly she felt sure that what she felt must be love, love at first sight, which, according to him, was an electric call from soul to soul. His kiss told her that they belonged to each other for good or evil. "'Darling,' he said, "'you are mine. I shan't let you go. For love of you I'll free myself from this temporary trouble I'm in, and come back to claim you soon. When I ask you to be my wife, you'll say to me what you wouldn't have said to the other Smith, if I can escape to hear you. But you don't know Mrs. Ellsworth. St. George rescued the princess from the dragon. So will I, though I've warned you I'm no saint. When we meet again I'll tell you what I am, and perhaps my real name, which is better than Smith, though it mayn't be as safe. Now, there are other things to say, but there was no time to say them, for the taxi stopped. The time seemed so short since the Savoy that Annesley couldn't believe they were in Torrington Square. Perhaps the chauffeur had made a mistake? She looked out, hoping that it might be so, but before her eyes were the darkened windows of the dull, familiar house, 22A. The great moment was upon them. End of chapter 4